Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about venture capital, where investors and founders alike can learn how VCs make decisions and reach conviction. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Nico Bonazzos joins us today from San Francisco. He is Managing Director at General Catalyst, an early-stage venture fund investing in information technology startups. Prior to GC, he was an R&D engineer at Yokogawa Electric Corporation, Tokyo. Nico, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nick. Excited to be here. Yeah, excited to have you. Um, I'm glad we were able to find this time and uh, go deep on your background. Maybe that's a good place to start. Can you tell us about sort of your path to tech and, and venture? Sure. Happy to. You know, VCs love talking about themselves. So <laughs> let me get started. Uh, so I was made in Greece, in case you're wondering about the accent. Grew up between Greece and the UK. Um, and uh, uh, as a young kid, uh, it turned out to be better at math. So it was kind of natural for me to go and become an engineer. The cool thing to do back 15 years ago or so when I went to college was to go and study electrical and computer engineering in my home country in Greece. I did that. And like a lot of other ambitious kids at the time, the only way out escape was to go and try to do a PhD at a really cool American university. So on my way uh, there, uh, I did some research in biomedical signal processing at the Harvard Medical School, figured out during that process that it was a very lonely, solitary career that required a lot of dedication. So this ended up axing my aspiration to become um, a PhD in biomedical engineering. So I ran away far from that and ended up in Tokyo. It was a dream of mine to go and explore um, a culture much you know, different than the European culture, especially as a young man. So I ended up uh, working for a big Japanese industrial automation company as an R&D engineer, uh, mostly doing what we would call today computer vision, but back then... Well, it didn't have, you know, that kind of fancy name. Spent a year there. But then the Greek in me said, you're too young to start working full time. I was 23 at the time. Little did I know. So I went back to school, went uh, to the UK, went to Cambridge and studied manufacturing, engineering and management. And it was a, almost like a technical MBA kind of program where we did classes for a couple of weeks, learning about the Toyota production system, lean manufacturing, all that cool stuff. And then ended up applying the, all the knowledge, working for real companies, like mostly manufacturing companies, like kitchen cabinet manufacturing companies, uh, light uh, equipment companies, all these kind of uh, companies. But while being in Cambridge, for the first time, I got exposed to tech startups. And it was a good um, ecosystem over there at the time. This was like 2008, um, 2009. However, uh, still at that time, 
the most ambitious folks ended up uh, going to Silicon Valley, either to raise capital or to find customers or to recruit executive team members or find mentors or, frankly, you know, sell the companies to some of the largest uh, tech uh, incumbents on the planet. So I got fortunate to get the Fulbright scholarship and ended up at Stanford um, in September 2009. After um, studying there and trying unsuccessfully to build a social network alongside uh, several of my friends on top of LinkedIn, we thought this would be real differentiation as everybody was building apps on top of Facebook at the time. Um, uh, I ended up at John Catalyst in late 2010, right when the firm was getting started in California. So I think my journey to tech and startups has been a convoluted one. Um, but hey, you know, 10 years later in venture capital, here I am. And it's been a very exciting decade that I, um, I experienced alongside my amazing partners and awesome portfolio founders. Love it. Love it. I, uh, in my career, I've developed a, a number of products. And my very first back in 2007, I think, was uh, a low-code, no-code uh, motion automation uh, software. And we we would work with companies like Yokogawa and um, you know uh, motion control companies, primarily in Japan, doing wafer handling and printed circuit board manufacturing. So we'll have to- uh, Totally. We'll have to discuss that another time. Um, I mean, in many ways, my experience in Japan helped me see the future a little bit because when I was there, uh, the Japanese had smartphones. You had like the equivalent of Google Maps on your phone. You could real-time translate the uh, restaurant menus. Um, you could play games on your phones. And this was before the iPhone, you know, got launched. Uh, and this helped me see the future quite a bit. So I'm very grateful to my time in Japan and my Japanese friends. Um, helped me quite a bit with my early years as an investor. Amazing. Amazing. So, yeah, bring us up to speed uh, on the, you know, what's the quick thesis at General Catalyst? Well, at GC, uh, we're in the business of uh, partnering with ridiculously ambitious founders who are, who are building category-defining businesses and are doing positive things for the world. We believe in this concept of responsible innovation, and we're mostly investing capital uh, from um, nonprofit institutions. So we do want, you know, our dollars to appreciate, of course, and do great positive things for the world along the way. So we invest in information technology. We're a multi-stage VC firm. So we write checks that range from half a million to $150 million dollars. We have offices in New York and Boston and San Francisco. Not that this matters in a COVID first world, but that's what it used to be back in the day. And uh, personally, I do invest a lot in first-time founders who have a lot of ambition. They are learning animals and they want to have a great positive impact in the world in two different areas. The first one, to use VC buzzwords, is future of work. Anything that helps people, solopreneurs, small businesses make more money, uh, have access to more opportunity, and live more fulfilling lives. So that's the first bucket. And the second one is um, any kind of product or service that gets the cool kids of the internet really excited. So new ways to fall in love, communicate with each other, entertain ourselves. And these companies tend to be and on online communities, gaming products, uh, social media products, etc. Yeah, I came across this this tweet that you wrote that I was going to bring up a bit later, but 
Um, you wrote this tweet, are you building a consumer product that is perceived as annoying, controversial, or stupid by most people? If yes, I'd love to hear from you. <laughs> Do you have some examples of some consumer successes that started out this way? Oh, so many, right? Like people would have said about Snap that, oh, this is like perfect for sex thing in the beginning, <laughs> but little did they know in the early days, 80% of the users were women. Uh, people would have said about Wish.com, oh, this is like random, crappy quality products that nobody wants to buy and fill their homes with. But, you know, price matters. Um, you could say, um, or Tinder, this is like the, perfect you know like hookup up who wants you know to just um quickly you know like see others only their photos not know and not learn about anything about them and you know meet them but turns out that people especially the younger generation at the time younger millennials they didn't want to spend time filling in long uh online dating profiles to get to meet each other so i think in the very beginning, controversy is good for consumer media products because at a minimum, um, it gets some people to be really passionate about them and really excited. Um, and also it gets a press and the word of mouth going. So if you hear very emotional um, commentary that's either love or hate, the press wants to write about it. Or if you tell your friends about something you're deeply passionate about or you deeply hate, are going to be curious to try that. Uh, and that's what young startups that nobody knows about them, that's what they need. Because the alternative is to pay money to acquire uh, these customers, and often they don't have this money to do so. So, of course, I'm in Chicago, and I'd love to start with a company that has some Chicago roots, a company that's up nearly 300% since their public debut last year, Livongo. Uh, rumor has it you were uh, in the room during the early formation stages. Can you uh, talk a bit about sort of that story behind Lavanga? Sure. So um, I was very fortunate, thanks to my partner, Haman, to be in the room uh, since the very beginning of uh, Livongo. and was a very active uh, participant to... Um, a lot of the uh, developments of the company for the first uh, three years of its life as a board member alongside Haman. So Livongo um, is a company in the chronic disease, mostly diabetes space and helping diabetes consumers really be compliant with um, the workflows of a uh, diabetes uh, customer and not have any excuses, but to uh, really track their glucose listen to uh, the coaches and make sure that whatever they're supposed to do, they actually are doing. In the case of an emergency, their entire um, care team and family um, get alerted so that everybody's in sync and the right uh, next steps uh, are followed. So in the early days, it started with the founders and the two founders of Livongo, uh, of course, they're from Chicago, Glenn Toolman and Lee Shapiro. Um, they were known quantities to my partners at GC because they had co-invested in one of our other um, healthcare IT portfolio uh, companies, Humedica, that we successfully exited. Um, and they were in crossroads because they were eager to find out what they want to do next. And they came to GC to have a brainstorming session with my partner, Hamant, about 
what to uh, consider doing next. They had a lot of ideas. Len and Lee have been business partners, had been business partners for a long time. They were passionate about education. They were passionate about clean tech. They were passionate about healthcare. So they came by and they had a lot of ideas. Uh, they wanted clearly to start a new company. And after a lot of uh, brainstorming, and because Glenn's son um, uh, was um, a diabetes uh, type 1 uh, patient, it became clear that uh, this would be fertile ground for them to build a new company. Um, of course, you know the numbers did support um, that uh, in the diabetes space, a very big company could get built because a lot of dollars from the U.S. Uh, healthcare spend um, get allocated there. So um, we got started with them uh, to uh, build a company in the space. I uh, came across a young uh, consumer hardware healthcare company that actually a Greek-American founder uh, had started, Kim Andrelides, um, who had built the wireless glucometer that could um, um, send all the data in the cloud after you know people were pricking their uh, fingers, and we ended up aqua hiring uh, that company, and this was the genesis uh, of Livongo. Of course, my partner Hamad was really uh, savvy, and he wanted the product to be best in class from day one. So we had to open a. Uh, a Silicon Valley office to recruit the product and the engineering and truly put like Silicon Valley to work. Glenn and Lee are phenomenal uh, and known quantities in the healthcare world. They are some of the best salespeople I've ever come across in my life. Like they're the kind of people, you know, that um, can sell eyes uh, to folks living in the article uh, circle. Um, and, um, uh, folks really trust them, especially in the healthcare world. Um, so they indeed, you know, brought some uh, very big accounts in the self-insured employer channel and afterwards in the from the insurance world. Um, so the company grew very quickly to uh, go public five, six years later after it got founded. And then a year later announced their merger with um, Teladoc and become the biggest, frankly, you know, Yep. healthcare IT, digital healthcare IT uh, exit to date. You mentioned at the top that you look for first-time founders. Is is this common to kind of, you know, have a thought exercise with the founders and at the formation stage? Or is our founders most often coming to you with the concept and you're, you're investing in it as is? I would say that the majority of the founders come to us with an idea, with uh, perhaps a product, perhaps a business uh, already. But, you know, in, in our business uh, uh, as venture capitalists, we're also um, collecting, you know, smart individuals. We're learning from smart individuals who sometimes may be looking for a gig, maybe thinking about starting something, or they've decided to start something, but they don't have an idea handy. Um, and, you know, in some of these occasions, uh, those individuals may end up working for a portfolio company or a few months later, they may end up starting a company. Um, so we're very people-focused, uh, relationship-driven VC firm. Um, and that's how a lot of our investment opportunities get generated. So you've been at GC for nearly 10 years now, right? Aside from the pandemic, what's some of the biggest? Right. Who, who would have thought, right? 
Unbelievable. <laughs> right. Um, what, what's been some of the biggest, I don't know, maybe the biggest change you've seen in the industry uh, of VC since you be- began your career? I think the outcomes keep getting bigger. And as a result, a lot of capital continues to find its way into tech companies, tech VCs, uh, tech startups. Um, so like, you know, we've been running, at least in our world, the tech world for like almost, you know, 12 years now, you know, where every year is better than the previous one. But the biggest change is like the magnitude of uh, the wins uh, and the level of ambition that founders, as a result, the new founders, you know, have. That's the biggest change in my mind. What, what of course, your... it's become more competitive than ever before, too, given yeah. all this capital that has found its way into the VC industry. And we've seen very clear stratification of uh, different groups that are uh, investing as specialists in specific stages. So when I got started, micro VCs did not really exist, for example were some angels and super angels and companies would go out try to raise 750k after a couple of months they were like oh we have 490,000 i think this is enough for us you know to hit our milestones now the moment you have a lead there's no chance you won't be oversubscribed you know right in your seed round what's your take on sort of the explosion in in seed funds and this early stage capital institutional capital I mean, this is amazing news for all the founders. It's like great, great news for all the founders. It's also good news for us multi-stage VCs in many ways because there are a lot more opportunities that get generated, get funded. It's bad news in some ways, especially when some of the larger micro VCs can keep on, you know, doing their parada for a long time. So this means, you know, more uh, of the cap table has already been sold for a long time, you know, after we invest. Uh, but broadly speaking, you know, for the uh, ecosystem of startups, it's absolutely great news that there are so many funders and they can help individuals who have hopes, dreams, and big ambitions to turn their ideas into products and businesses. That's good. What, what's been the biggest change at GC since the uh, pandemic broke in March? Um, you know, GC was a distributed firm. Uh, for at least the last decade that have been part of the firm. But as truly uh, formalizing that across the entire firm, uh, back office, investment team, uh, continue to uh, have a fantastic culture that enables learning and uh, empowers everybody to take initiative. Uh, It's been a great, great development for all of us. I think we've been also more aggressive uh, investing in companies outside of the major hubs and also doing a fair amount more in Europe that my fantastic partner, Adam Valkin, has been leading for us. These are some of the developments, you know, if you prefer. In terms of pace of investing, you know, we were active before. We continue to be active. We were fortunate to uh, close our most recent set of funds of $2.3 billion in April. And we're very grateful to RLPs for honoring their commitments, continue to be excited about our firm. Um, yeah, so we've been pretty active across all stages because the opportunities are um, immense, as I was talking about before. And being on, uh, for any of us you know, who works in tech, you're on the right side of history. 
So, of, of course, the pandemic has created headwinds and tailwinds for a variety of sectors and tech trends. Uh, which, which that have experienced significant tailwinds do you think are here to stay and will sustain, you know, significant growth over time uh, versus those that, you know, may just be artificially boosted uh, from the situation we're in? Sure. I mean, I think anything that has to do with digital health and in particular healthcare in general is here to stay. Like uh, the adoption of uh, telehealth, uh, such a great idea. You know, it was one of these obvious ideas, but life and friction um, were like slowing down things. But now I don't think, you know, for a lot of instances, you would like to go to your dog or you would like to walk into the CVS. You could do a quick video chat. You could have your drugs delivered to your door. That's here to stay. I think e-commerce for huge swaths of the population was not the obvious you know, way to do your shopping or your grocery shopping. But now a lot of baby boomers, um, even older folks, you know, have really started using portfolio company Instacart or buying more stuff online. That's absolutely you know, uh, here to stay. Um, these are just you know, a couple of ideas. I've been shocked at how long it's taken my folks, my parents to order on Amazon over the years. I mean, just, you know, some of the basics and now they're, they're pros at that, you know, and they're using Instacart and all the rest of it. There you go. You know, necessity is the mother of all invention, you know, as yeah. some of my ancestors said one day and clearly it applies, you know, to the adoption of technology. I'd, I'd like to get your take. I know you do a lot of consumer investing, um, I'd love to get your take on sort of the evolution of social a bit. And there's this, this documentary, I don't know if you've caught it on Netflix called the social dilemma. It's talking about all these issues with social media. And many of these experts are arguing that, you know, we're not evolved to handle all these inputs and that big tech has, and will continue to sort of manipulate both beliefs and actions. Uh, you know, what's your take on this, Nico? Sure. So uh, obviously, you know, the uh, social uh, media and online communities and online media in general is an ever evolving, you know, field. Uh, and as younger folks become, uh, uh, go online uh, and consumer preferences change over time, you get to see new ideas that become successful products. And then some of these companies become very significant. Every time you have a new tech platform, uh, this enables new products to get built, like, you know, with mobile, we now have a number of mobile apps that are freaking huge. But as soon as we have other technologies that become platform technologies, maybe VR, maybe some of the audio stuff, maybe um, AR over time, we're going to see brand new incumbents that over time will become very sizable uh, businesses. So, of course, I watched uh, the documentary. There are a lot of friends and acquaintances from Silicon Valley who are the protagonists over there. I would say it's a story of uh, the magnitude of unintended consequences, you know, because when you're getting started as a, as a young founder or as a first-time founder, in general, you know, if you're putting a product out there, you're just maniacally focused on the one thing that either you yourself, if you're building for yourself or whoever the initial customer is, would really, really love because that's what they want. You're not thinking about what would happen if like 100 million people use this. You're not thinking about what would happen if uh, there are going to be 
but you know apples doing nasty things um and uh, this you know also is combined with the idea of how leadership and uh, a lot of uh these companies you know need to evolve over time and be more thoughtful about the societal impact that technology has now that we are the incumbents now that we've made it you know to uh around the world um, however when you're getting started as a as, as a company builder you can't outsource uh your company building to to the attorneys you know because in that case it's going to be a bloated bloated product trying to please everybody and uh nobody is gonna care about that stuff so i think um, you got to be edgy in the beginning. You got to be singularly focused. That's the recipe for success. And um, fast growth inevitably creates a lot of challenges and opportunities. However, if any, uh, uh, if the companies that have the right values and the right leadership that's willing actually to even recruit um, fantastic leadership from well-run companies, even outside of tech, can have smart people on advisory boards and the board of directors who have the right values, um, you don't get into the challenging, you know, um, problems uh, that a lot of these companies, you know, have faced. So I think I'm optimistic about the role of tech and how we can be an agent of change and how quickly we can be an agent of uh, change. Um, but also it's a, uh, great opportunity for us now that we've made it and we're helping run the world like without tech now in the covid first world communication wouldn't really be happening work wouldn't be happening our kids wouldn't be able to go to school you wouldn't be able to go to the doctor i mean let's talk about all this amazing you know developments and products that tech has empowered so i'm, I'm optimistic about all that stuff um and we uh, can be more thoughtful as we achieve all this scale. People see what they want to see. And <laughs> despite Correct. all the advantages, you know, it's it's easy for people to criticize and see what's wrong with, uh, especially early stage tech, but but also estab- established tech. Yeah. I mean, in general, you know, it's good that all of us obviously now have opinions. It's fantastic to discuss some of the pressing issues. And every year there are going to be new challenges, and opportunities that come out because of the magnitude of the scale that the companies uh, have achieved in a very short period of time. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. 
What do you, you know, we've talked about big tech a little bit, uh, Facebook, of course, uh, one of the, the largest social uh, companies, but um, what do you think happens with big tech? Do you think big tech is limiting uh, the pace of innovation and success in, in early stage tech? And do you think, you know, big tech should be broken up? I, I don't think big tech is limiting innovation and success. Uh, we've seen again and again how they've been very successful um, recruiting incredible talent to work for big tech, to doing uh, R&D very successful, often, you know, like hardcore R&D that otherwise, you know, the governments do not fund in most countries. Um, we've also been seeing how successful they are in acquiring a number of companies that we greedy VCs invest in. Um, and some of these acquisitions end up becoming incredibly, incredibly successful enterprises. Like I'm talking about the YouTubes of the world, the bookings.com of the world, the Instagrams, the WhatsApps of the world. You know, these are nominal acquisitions that took place by big tech and pushed the envelope forward and became massive, massive, you know, uh, platforms. Um, and of course, you know, um, a number of the large tech incumbents have been over the years, very successful in launching new products themselves. Most of them fail because it's hard to, in a big organization, to build something small, beautiful, catering for a small initial market. It's hard to. You don't get out of bed you know, to do that. You're getting out of bed to think, how can we serve our customers? How, how can we make more money so we can be promoted you know, faster and get our end-of-the-year bonus? But sometimes uh, you get to see you know, some uh, products be very successful got launched by successful large tech incumbents. Should tech be broken up? I would leave that you know, to the policymakers and to the politicians because they are the ones um, who decide about all these things. Obviously, you saw um, recently in the new cycle, the Congress decided after uh, uh, quite a bit of time looking into uh, uh, some of the stuff, whether you know some of the companies are tech monopolies and deciding, oh, maybe, you know, that's the case. So let's see what's the actions that they're going to take on on that stuff. That's not new, you know. Whenever a sector becomes really big, whenever there is the idea of abusing one's distribution so that the competition cannot survive, companies get broken up. It has happened again and again in various sectors. Um, in tech, we have not seen much yet. Uh, is this going to change? I have no doubt. Over time, you know, we're going to see more regulation in our world. Because as we were talking about before, we made it, you know, we're helping around the world right now. And this uh, noise, uh, a lot of the incumbents and naturally um, there are going to be tensions. So would some tech companies be regulated or uh, broken up? Yeah, I think it's inevitable that this will happen. Do you think, you know, with the changes that we're seeing recently that have been accelerated with remote work and sort of the spread of startup formation across this country and others. Do you think the degree to which the Valley in San Francisco is the, the center of influence of all tech, do you think that that um, becomes less strong over time and that, you know, there, there is a, a significant portion of startup talent and startup value that's created, you know, outside of um, Northern California? 
Uh, I think Silicon Valley today is a mindset in the COVID first world. Doesn't matter if you are in downtown San Francisco or, or you are anywhere in the world, uh, location of your liking. Uh, you don't have an advantage if you're in the South. Uh, everybody is one Zoom away from everybody else. Um, so for folks who are not in the main hubs, use it to your advantage because people are bored or tired behind their computer screens or eager to answer your call or video chat. And uh, I think it's also very liberating for a lot of companies and founders because now they can hire talent everywhere. Before they were limited by their geographic boundaries. But, but now, you know, you can hire the talent that you're dreaming about because uh, working remotely, working from home has become something socially acceptable. So do I think Silicon Valley will continue to be a leading force in the world of tech, startups, innovation, or, and marketing technology in particular? Yes, I do believe so. But is Silicon Valley the only place where you have to go in order to be successful in the world of tech as it used to be when frankly even i went there no it's not and you can see companies like shopify now be worth uh hundreds of billions of dollars that um are not you know based in uh, silicon valley in europe you now have over 30 companies that are valued over a billion dollars and you have more developers all over europe than in the u.s so i do think personally that Talent is universal, while opportunity is not. And in a world where entrepreneurship is becoming more mainstream, Silicon Valley is a mindset, and all of us investors are eager to find opportunities to invest in outside of the uh, main hubs. And we don't look down on companies that have remote or distributed engineering teams. I think that's great news for all builders out there. Great, well, great news. Nico, you've come to the right place. <laughs> We're in the middle of the country, and uh, yeah, it'd be great to to get on some cap tables with with General Catalyst. But um, so I've got would be amazing. Would be amazing. I've got a hypothetical for you. Okay. Uh, it's called three data points. So I'm going to give you a hypothetical situation, and you can ask me for three specific data points uh, in order to make your decision on investment. So this is not how investing works, but we're going to uh, pretend. This is how it goes. So let's say your approach okay. to invest in a consumer SaaS startup. The startup has mm -hmm. $3 million of ARR. It's growing 10 to 20% month over month, let's say for the past six months, with a quick ratio over four, and LTV to CAC three to one. Uh, again, the catch is you can only ask three questions for three specific data points in order to make your decision. What three questions do you ask? Is it a category leader? Um, second one would be founder related, like are the founders ridiculously ambitious, obsessed with the customer and, uh, their learning machines, so founder related question. And then, um, the third one would be in a few years, why what they're doing is going to be so valuable that everybody in the world would look back and be like, Die, you know, I can't believe, you know, we couldn't, we're not using this product before, or we didn't have a solution like that. So third question is about the strategic value in the future. And how would you frame those to the founders? If you were talking to the founder specifically, the category leader, like what would the question be for the founder and the ambition one? You know, how do you, is there a way that you can't get at that with one question, but is there a, a good question that gives you insight into that? Yeah, so, so the ambition one would be like um, five to 10 years from today, 
What's your vision? What do you stand for? And I would just let the founders rumble. And if it's like really jaw-dropping, inspiring with a bunch of detail, clearly they've thought a lot about it. If it's like, oh yeah, we're going to have, you know, 50 million ARR, that's not as inspiring, you know? <laughs> <laughs> or hopefully by then, you know, we'll be getting acquired. That's immediate red flag, you know? I don't want to hear that. Um, in terms of the category leadership, uh, the question to the founders would be, tell me a little bit about your competition. Yeah. How do you win? How do you lose? And you would see how they talk about the competition. If they frame their company correctly, explaining why what they have makes their customers be really obsessed and not live without it. And they're crushing the competition because they're faster, cheaper, better without talking, uh, saying nasty things about their competition could get me excited. But if they get into details, you know, we win half of the times, we lose the other half of the times, or, oh, there is a lot of platform risk here because we're on top of somebody else. Um, or, you know, people use it, but we're not the system of record, you know, stuff like that, you know, would get me on chain. Nico, what resources have you found valuable that you would recommend to listeners? You know, wish people could listen in to my partners and our partners in meetings, because for me personally, they've been a fountain of wisdom and a lot of uh, knowledge uh, over the years, especially because some of them are long-time VCs or very successful uh, company builders. In the absence of that, um, I think um, having mentors uh, is what has been very, very you know, helpful to me. So whatever you're doing as a founder, company builder, participant in the tech ecosystem, um, learn how to cold email people, shoot pretty high, um, whoever you look up to, because you never know. Maybe that person wants to pay it forward. Or maybe that person has aspirations to recruit somebody like you. So find one or two good mentors in the fields that you care about. We're going to devote time to do. And for me, you know, that's the best resource that you can have. It's almost like a gift. What do you know you need to get better at? I think right now, uh, especially in that COVID first world, um, I need to get better at uh, evaluating and dealing with very salesy, very, very promotional, you know, characters that often get to be the CEOs and founders of companies that are raising money. And it's harder, you know, to sometimes, you know, vet them uh, after like a quick 30-minute, you know, Zoom. I think that's one area that I know I need to get better at. And then finally, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you and follow along with General Catalyst? Uh, they can reach out to me. They can um, uh, email me, nikajohncatalyst.com is my email. Well, maybe we'll go from 100 emails a day to 150. <laughs> Nico, it's been a real all pleasure. All right, let's do it. And uh, you know, thanks so much for your insights for, for all the founders and aspiring investors out there. I do appreciate your thoughtful questions and thank you to all the listeners for their attention. All right, that'll wrap up today's interview. If you enjoyed the episode or a previous one, let the guests know about it. Share your thoughts on social or shoot them an email. Let them know what particularly resonated with you. I can't tell you how much I appreciate that some of the smartest folks in venture are willing to take the time and share their insights with us. If you feel the same, 
a compliment goes a long way. Okay, that's a wrap for today. Until next time, remember to over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.